The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, Slate Culture Gab Fest listeners, and Happy New Year. This is Dana coming to tell you that we have a special treat for you today. We were not able to come together during this New Year's Day to tape, but instead we're bringing you a best of show. And the best part of this best of is that if you're not a Slate Plus member, these conversations will be brand new to you because they all come from our Slate Plus archives. We've decided that we should stick with the same theme for this roundup as we chose last year, Slut Plus Book Choices. We don't often get to discuss books at length on this show, so this seemed like a perfect excuse to bring you some book-centric content. But before we do that, we thought we would include one non-literary segment which aired on Slate Plus just last week, in which we talk about the new movie, the Tom Hooper adaptation of the Broadway musical Cats. Cats is the kind of movie, I will say, that is worth seeing if only for the conversations that you have afterward. That was true of the group of people that I came bursting out of the theater, scratching our heads, talking about it with. And it is certainly true with Julia's, Steve's, and my conversation about it. So whether or not you have any intention of seeing Cats, I hope you will enjoy our conversation about it. We certainly did. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, as always, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the magazine's membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And in return for that $35, you get extended ad-free versions of every Slate podcast, along with many other benefits, including the three of us puzzling over cats. So if you want to support the show, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today to hear segments like these. So here we go. We'll start with that recent cat segment and move on to the literary segments after that. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gabfest. Today we discuss cats, 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 cats. I'm so excited to talk about cats with you guys. Um, Tom Hooper, he of the King's Speech and Les Miserables, uh, has adapted cats. For the big screen, starring Dame Judi Dench, Ian McKellen, Jason Derulo, ballerina Francesca Hayward. Uh, what's her face from Australia? <laughs> Rebel Wilson. Um, and more. It trailer dropped the summer and uh, caused yowls of surprise from the internet. The movie dropped last week and caused yelps of delight at how bad the film is. Uh, and now we have all seen it. And for your listening pleasure, Slate Plus listeners, we shall discuss it. Dana, we'll start with you since you're our <laughs> film critic and this is ostensibly a film. What'd you think? I mean, I think I have to say just a couple more factual things about Cats before we get into evaluating it, because it's all part of the bizarreness of its sudden appearance on the landscape in Christmas 2019, which is that it had a horribly abysmal weekend at the box office. It's at 19% on Rotten Tomatoes, so that's how many critics had anything nice to say about it. And the print of it that was released was just recalled from theaters because apparently Tom Hooper, in his haste to get it out by Christmas time, forgot to put in some of the special effects. So there are these hilarious photos circulating around the internet of, for example, Dame Judi Dench wearing a complete fur cat suit, except that her hands are sticking out like bare human hands <laughs> with a wedding ring on one of them. <laughs> that's one of the mistakes that they I forgot to put fur on Judy's hands in one shot. And apparently, I didn't notice it in my screening, but there is another shot where a guy in a hoodie, like some crew member, is standing in the background, and you can just see. <laughs> 
so in addition to being a laughingstock in all of these ways, poor Tom Hooper has also been humiliated by just literally having unfinished homework just out there in theaters and they're scrambling like mad before Christmas to get it get it all fixed. So that's the um that's the object we're approaching. Oh I mean, well also and just the notion that it could be fixed somehow by better digital <laughs> fur technology. By, by as, putting paws on duty dead. As opposed to like by just a fundamental like re like giving it a new spine concept purpose plot script in life is like the only way to fix it. But anyway, okay. Personally, I'm proud. I'm very proud that we saw the uh, the pre-Dench hand fixing version. It's like we saw the magnificent Ambersons in the original cut or something. <laughs> <laughs> Although I didn't notice those details at the time because there was so much else going on on screen. I'm I sure did, they completely I noticed got by some me. weirdly bare hands. <laughs> I did notice that. <laughs> but here's what I will say. I mean, I know that we have different, everyone has different experiences of what constitutes camp fun as opposed to just an awful, boring slog. And I guess the 19% seems to point at the idea that this doesn't fit most people's idea of a cult midnight movie. But my experience in seeing it, which was that I went with a group of family members that were in town for the holidays, including my daughter, who is this theater mad, just drama nerd who, you know, listens to all kinds of drama podcasts and reads drama blogs and knows about cats just by osmosis, the original musical cats on on stage, without having ever seen it. I think she knows most of the the songs and the general mood of what Cats is supposed to be, um, that she and I experienced it in a state of total camp joy. It was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show circa 1984. We were clasping hands the entire time. We kept exchanging dazzled gazes at how completely strange and bizarre <laughs> the story was. And we couldn't wait on the way out to just reconstitute in loud, boisterous detail as many strange things that had happened as possible. The other three family members we saw it with, one of them, my brother, slept through almost the entire thing <laughs> and just woke up to the strange moment of Judy Dench telling us at the end in a fourth wall breaking song that a cat is not a dog. <laughs> that was all he remembered about it. And, uh, and my other relatives seemed to be in a less entertained state of just bafflement. And um, Yeah, yeah. I, to to me, it is it is one of the bad joys, and I almost want to see it again before they fix the dench hands. <laughs> I think it's too late. They've sent out the no, no. patch. Tuesday, Tuesday, the oh, okay. patch goes on. There's okay. you got you have one more day to see it without the the furry the dench, dench hands. hands. Oh, I mean, the, let's say let's stipulate that none of us have seen the Broadway musical, correct? I saw it. It was the oh, first musical did? I ever saw. Oh well, then you're the one who should be providing the background for that. But isn't it the case? I, mean, I was like six. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that surprised me about seeing this is that that musical, if that really is the plot of the musical, ran for that long on Broadway and was such a huge What's hit. The fourth, because yeah, fourth, fourth longest fourth running Chris- Broadway, I think, and uh, and then third longest running West End. Um, uh, play musical. I mean, yeah. I know the play as well was often criticized for not having any story. That it is essentially a set of character introductions, yes. right? Each cat gets a song. They introduce themselves by name, and it's it's like plot, a reality show before there's a reality. It show. It is a reality show. Like insofar as there's a plot, the plot is that each cat announces his or her name, does a dance, talks about their feline characteristics that qualify them to be taken to this afterlife. To die. Right. No, it's a it's a talent show where the reward. <laughs> Is suicide. Uh, um, well, isn't the reward sort of eternal life or a second okay, shot Okay, sure. At life? The reward is the heavy side layer, <laughs> a.k.a. <laughs> heaven, a re- re- reincarnation, I guess. But just as like some other cat. So they're all just singing about how fucking miserable they are, even as they sort of like, you know, Skimble Shanks is a railway cat, I guess. Like, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> that one was really sorry. Okay, Steve, what did you think? I mean, where to even begin? I mean, I guess I would start here, which is that in the last month, coincidentally, I for the first time in my life experienced Les Miserables on stage, and uh, and now Cats, albeit in a movie theater. And here's the one plausibly interesting observation I have about the challenges facing Tom Hooper and both, which is that Les Miserables is a 600,000 word or whatever it is, novel trash compacted down to a three hour stage extravaganza. And it's the opposite problem here. You're taking this tiny little desiccated sponge of some throwaway thing that T.S. Eliot did, Old Possum's book of something, something cats. I can't even remember. And I bet T.S. Eliot couldn't, practical cats. I bet T.S. Eliot couldn't either. And you're just deluging it with uh, lacrimose waters in order to get it to grow um, out into something resembling a two-hour theatrical experience. Um, I found both very odd scale wise in a way i mean sort of the, the weird density of like you know kind of melodramatic high to melodramatic peak will you know uh one after the other in les miserables is is is, is uh, juxtaposed with cats which is just about you know less than nothing i mean this it's just very odd um almost nothing of t.s Eliot and his odd, weird sensibilities leaks through though i maybe the religious parable or whatever I did not even think this was a good, bad movie, Dana. I wanted so badly to go to camp, you know, into camp ecstasies or ecstasies. The camp heavy side layer. Yeah. Yes. And I never got there. I, I, instead it made me incredibly sleepy. And, um, what people have been pointing out about the movies are creepy. It's sort of alienatingly creepy. It's, it's like, you know, these kind of shaved human faces, um, CGI into these sort of photorealistic feline, bodies minus genitalia um you know there's there's sort of an odd cannibalistic number where the uh, rebel wilson character keeps not only keeps pet cockroaches but trains them to be uh, like busby berkeley cockroach dancers <laughs> yes there's the Bud- busley who are who are themselves be berkeley cockroaches who are themselves played by human beings who have been you know, miniaturized, digitally miniaturized, who Rebel Wilson then occasionally just plucks one up and eats it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just so very, very peculiar. The only, I will say one sort of positive, I think there's racial othering going on in this. This is not the one positive thing. There's weird racial othering going on. I mean, Idris Elba is so sexy that he looks fucking great even in this movie as the villain but you know it's it's it the fact that you were supposed to make up for idris idris elba being a black villain with the black cat being kind of othered and then redeemed doesn't really work at all i mean it, it's you mean just, jennifer hudson being Grisella. yes jennifer yeah. hudson it just feels as though that 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 just doubles down on the racial othering in the a ra- way the race stuff is so bad I'm sorry. It's, it is so bad. Well, also yeah. because also, the insertion of a white cat, you know, that character, Victoria, who Francesca Hayward plays, who's yeah. essentially the protagonist of the movie, this ballet dancing white cat. She is an incredible dancer, by the way, and that is her doing the actual dancing. But that cat is not in the musical, right? I mean, apparently, from what I've read, there is no such cat as Victoria wow. the kitten. And also she and so is, she's placed in there as this kind of proxy for the audience, like, here's your pretty yes. white girl. Well, and she's also the, the ballerina who plays her, I believe, is black, but she's in this, like, white fur oh, coat. Oh, my God, that makes oh, it even wow. crazier. So, she's, so she dons this white digital fur. Meanwhile, That's Idris terrible. Elba is, like, the... I mean, I guess he's supposed to be the black cat, but he... The way that the black bodies are displayed under the digital fur technology in this, in Idris Elba's character and Jennifer Hudson's character, are so weird. Yeah, because his is the most sexualized of all, probably, his right? Because like, he's so buff. 
Yeah, and, and it, that part is yucky. And then meanwhile, there is some kind, I mean, I'm curious whether this is something they fix in the patch, but there's some kind of highlighter fail on Jennifer Hudson's face when she's singing the final, like, belted out memory, where she literally has, like, white circles around her eye as, and mouth based on the way that the highlighter is painted on her face in a way that seems like, I don't know, they didn't hire the right makeup artist or they, like, she literally looks like she's wearing blackface like it's 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 abominable i mean i was definitely in the steve camp of of really wanting this to be camp fun but finding it to be like camp slog (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and and what kept me interested was not the like mesmerizing delight of the badness of each scene but the kind of mysterious puzzling over like how it is that a cultural product like this could even exist in 2019 and I like I have like a a litany of questions here of which I will ask some one it does just make you think about um the glorious underbelly of our obsession with IP like why did this movie get made because someone somewhere was like what should we make instead of a new thing from somebody that's interesting like oh cats longest running show wherever it's in a meme why laughter cried it's better than cats like surely there's an audience for the cats movie but you go back and you look at it you're like what was this poem super weird poem what was this musical not that great a musical and then how do you turn that musical into a movie with the technology of 2019 like i'm very was very surprised by the amount of ballet like, I didn't really think that the whole concept of cats was to watch human dance forms in mm-hmm. cat costumes. Like, I don't remember enough about when I saw cats on Broadway, but I just didn't, I wasn't like there for the ballet. You oh, know? you see, I thought the dancing was the best part of it. I mean, the music, I agree, is completely unmemorable. What an unmemorable score, except for memory, which everybody already knew going in. Is there a right. single song right. that you can remember from this movie, in spite of the fact that, as my daughter pointed out, many of the songs just simply consist of a single chorus re- repeated 15 to 20 times? <laughs> and they say, I am, I am name, 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 scene, adjective, scene, adjective, right. name, Anglophilic, name, name. whimsical cat name. Also, okay, so so... So much dancing. Thing two, um, like in addition to all of the weird treatment of the black actors' performances, like not so great for the fat cats. There's a lot of just fat shaming, yeah. like re- yeah. like Rebel Wilson's like roly poly haunches are haunching around, and then she's eating. You know, she's constantly like stuffing things in her mouth. Similarly, the James Corden characters' roly poly haunches are like even haunchier and like frequently played for laughs as he like prat falls on and off things like. There's a lot of fat cat mockery, which I guess that they're cats and people who have fat cats do like to talk about how fat their cats are in my experience. But like, but they're also human because they're humanoid. <laughs> and so it just feels super yucksville. Um, question three. Wait, there's so many questions still. Um, question three is like. Why would you not make this more like the lion with the Lion King technology? Like it would have been very interesting to see digital cats sing these songs <laughs> mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. Would it? Because the Lion King was not interesting. I'd infinitely rather watch this than the, than the new Lion King. But the technology of watching the animals do their thing in the new Lion King was kind of interesting. I mean, I guess not. I guess we were complaining about how inexpressive they were. But there's something so alien about how these cats communicate and perform that I think the uncanny valley of the half human cat, you're just like, why go to all yeah. this trouble to make digital versions of outfits that look like bad costumes? Like they look like B movie villains or something like with their weird 
crotches and long t- wobbly tails that look like <laughs> stuffed socks. Like they just look so And the fur strange. coats, which are very disturbing because as my daughter pointed mm-hmm. out, what fur are they wearing? Why is Judy yes. Dench wearing a fur coat? <laughs> Meanwhile, oh yes. And then the fourth thing I wanted to point out is that just this is like a sort of Hunger Games for acting chops where the just the deep indignity of the whole thing drowns almost everybody. But then a few pure acting talents <laughs> are able to like claw their way to the top and find some bit of flotsam to hang on to. And so like Judy Dench, utterly unbespurched by this movie, never mind her bare hands. Like she's just <laughs> she's just still fucking Judy Dench. You're like, oh yeah, I'm here at a real movie that has real stuff in it because Judy's talking to me. Ian McKellen, similarly yeah, unbent and unbowed. Um and very cat-like. I loved some of what Ian McKellen did with sort of rubbing his face against yes. different people and things in a cat-like way. <laughs> he, I think he really, maybe I don't know if he's a cat person in life, but he seemed to have thought more deeply about feeling yes, behavior. The, than the physicality of his catitude was was really deeply felt and rendered. Um, I, I would show what other stand-up performances there were. I mean, Idris Elba's performance and Jennifer Hudson's performances were both great, but also like very under... Uh, I, Something about the rendering of their black catness and their underlying blackness in this very British production just felt super off. But they they both, I thought, did better than some others. Who were, were there other performances? What about Taylor? Oh, question number six. Why was Taylor wearing high heels? <laughs> Taylor is a cat wearing shoes. Why is she fucking wearing well, shoes? The sartorial, no the sartorial shoes. world of the cats is a whole segment unto mm-hmm. itself because why are some cats naked? Why do some cats wear fur coats that are made of the same kind of fur that they themselves have? <laughs> Did they oh, skin yeah. their ancestors for a coat? <laughs> and then, of course, the guy who taps, Skimbleshanks, I believe is his name, Ooh. he needs shoes he wears because like, he taps. And he wears river dance like high pants <laughs> right <laughs> but why does taylor pants. we need nothing but a collar and high heels and then let's not get into the disturbing world of james corden who has the porky pig look of a vest and a top hat but no pants but spats <laughs> i guess he is wearing spats and then also wait there's another one all oh, right then grizabella the, the jennifer hudson character has like a, a, a shabby shaggy fur coat on top of her coat also she walks on all fours a bunch of the time even though the rest of them walk around on two legs um <laughs> <laughs> right. Wait, there's one. Oh, and then there's Mr. Mistopheles's like weird magic outfit with buttons sewn on all over the place. Yeah, the oh clothes are mysterious as well. Can I here cite a tweet from Alina Smith, our recent guest, the creator of the show Dickinson, who mm-hmm. had a really funny thread about cats um, last night. I think maybe while she was watching it. I don't know if she was tweeting from within the theater, but my favorite of, of many of her funny comments was everything that scares me about actors is embodied in this film. <laughs> and I think <laughs> I see that in what you were saying, Julia, about it being this sort of this this race to the bottom of sort of who can be the cattiest and win the cat contest and just really not a sense among these actors of community or understanding of the project that they're in on, which you can't really blame them for because we ourselves have no idea what's going on in this world, right? I mean, we haven't, the three of us have not even talked about things like, why is it that when McCavity, the Idris Elba villain cat, magically spirits you away, you end up in a barge on the Thames, kind of by (laughs) telekinesis? (laughs) There's just, the universe that it takes place in is so nonsensical that you... People keep talking about this being a stoner movie and that you have to be on edibles to enjoy it, et cetera. I mean, I would say that whether you are or not, it takes you to that place, that I, place where logical yes. connections don't matter I drank anymore. a glass of wine before and a glass of wine during, and then I went with my friend Keith, and about 
50 minutes in which felt like 90 minutes in he was like i need more wine do you want any and i was like yes please like it was it there were not enough substances remember the scene early on where they're in some kind of like soda fountain for milk and all the cats do like a fantastical soda shop jaunt and just like lick ferociously at the milk dispensers like they're in (laughs) hamster cages like what the goddamn fuck i mean i i gotta say it's like i i went in there just stone cold straight edge sober and i came out thinking now i've done shrooms (laughs) right i mean you just feel like that movie oh my god was such a fucking bad trip i mean i turned to my family i went we rare occasions all four of us went to go see a movie together and i turned to them i said as it started good luck everybody i'll see you on the other side It's it definitely just, felt like that. And it is that yeah. kind of movie. So can't we at least say that? I mean, for all of, of the criticism that we're laying out, don't you sort of agree that it's not as if you can say, oh, that again, right? I mean, this at the very least is an utterly bizarre and sui generis experiment that completely failed at the box office, at least, and seemingly in the hearts of viewers for the most part. But there's not anything else out there like it. And it's a big swing of sorts. I don't know. I mean, I think that probably this will chill the desire of studio executives to adapt big Broadway properties. Like you're saying, Julia, we are in this moment when, you know, In the Heights is going to become a movie. West Side Story is about to be remade. People are thinking about musicals in a big budget way again. And maybe this will put a slight chill in that. But I still feel glad that this exists on the Christmas entertainment landscape. I definitely am happier to live in a world where this is made than this is never made because big, weird strange risks are more interesting than everybody playing it safe and making the same old, same old. But but this also just feels like a monstrous outgrowth of the current moment in culture where it's like, okay, you take a name director, you take a name stars, you got IP. How can you go wrong? And it's like, nope, you could still go wrong. You need a <laughs> script that makes sense and an idea that makes sense and a plan for the visuals that makes sense and enough money and time to do those things. And <laughs> like none of those things seem to have been in place. Wait, one last, one last shroom bit. Um, just the scale was super weird. Like, I, I would like to see a super close read of stills from cats that tries to figure out how tall the cats are by measuring them in comparison to, like, the statue in the, like, fake, I don't know, is it supposed to be Trafalgar Square at the end or whatever? They're in some, they're, or maybe they're in front of St. Paul's. They're in some iconic but <laughs> unnameable to me London landscape. I was too far up in the Ferris wheel. Um then they're in like a theater, but the theater seems to be cat scale. But then they go to a railroad and the railroad seems to be human scale. Right. And then they have like Rebel Wilson has pet mice and pet cockroaches. But the size relationship, like the the mice seem like actually relative to the cats. They must be kind of like gerbil size. Like well, just I think, everything about the scale. Is, I think I can at least answer what I think it was trying to do. I agree that the scale is utterly screwed up and appears to keep changing. I think the attempt was for that when they were in a human landscape, like a house, there's a couple cats that are domestic, including Rebel Wilson's character. You can tell because they have collars usually. And when they're in a domestic humanscape, they're, they have big chairs and big forks, and it looks like, you know, they're cat size compared, or roughly cat size compared to the props around them. Whereas when they're in Jellicle World, I can't believe we haven't used that word yet in our discussion of cats because it comes up approximately every 90 seconds in the movie. And the great no thing is that it's never defined. And if there's, if there's one thing my family will take away from this movie, I, I said goodbye to my house guests this morning. They went off to their next destination. The last thing we yelled after them was, have a Jellicle time. <laughs> because it's just such a great word to mean some vague 
vague everything, something good, right? And I remember J- Judy Dench's line to some cat that had wronged her at some point, you'll never be my jellicle choice. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the Jellicles is roughly, the, I guess, the club of street cats that aren't domestic, that are these ragtag survivors in the streets. And when you're in Jellicle world, it seems that everything is, is normal-sized, right? When Taylor Swift's cat, Bumbalarina, des- descends in one of those moons, those 1920s-style stage moons, it's as if she were a human in relation to the size of it. So that is a cat constructed theater, I imagine, in the Jellicle world. But then isn't it across the street from the milk shop where the soda fountain stools are not <laughs> cat size? And also, who's supposed to sit on the stools if not humans? But that seemed to be in the Jellicle place. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question. Like, are there purpose-built jellicle structures, or are the jellicles just inhabiting and repurposing human structures for their own purposes? I don't know. So, wait, I have a question before we exit the segment. Chances that this ends up a Rocky Horror-style midnight movie um, participatory cult staple? I don't know about Staple, but I think it's going to have some afterlife yes. in that capacity. I don't know if it's going to be stoners on late night TV or maybe the occasional midnight movie screening or if it's going to be, I have no idea, like Rocky Horror style people coming in their own cat costumes to the theater. But I think this movie, particularly the pre-patch version of it with the mistakes, <laughs> is going to have some sort of internet or otherwise afterlife. I agree. Slate Plus listeners, thank you so much for listening to this bonus feline jellical segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. You all are incredibly jellical for supporting Slate and its journalism. And we'll see you next, Heaviside Lair. And now on to the book discussions, as promised. We're going to start here with a segment that aired pretty recently in late November on our Posh Veg edition of the podcast. During the regular show, Steve and Julia had spoken with Slate Books and culture critic Laura Miller about her list of the top 50 nonfiction books from the last 25 years for Slate. That was a great list. And in this Slate Plus episode, which I was absent for but then pleasurably got to listen to that week and absolutely loved, Steve, Julia, and Laura talk in a more personal way about reading nonfiction and what nonfiction books have meant a lot to them over the course of our lives. It was a conversation that I absolutely loved and recommended to our producer to put in this roundup. So even though it's not the classic three, it's Laura Miller instead, I hope that you will all enjoy it as much as I did. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we are joined by Laura Miller to continue our conversation about the wonder of great nonfiction books. Uh, and I think we're going to dig a little bit into beyond the last 25 years, perhaps, and talk about experiences with nonfiction that changed our thinking significantly. Uh, Laura, can you go first? What in the innumerable books that you have read and encountered professionally and unprofessionally throughout your life, what are some nonfiction books that have really changed your mind or your thinking or your frame of reference on the world? Well, one that comes to mind, I read decades and decades and decades ago, and I was more or less a baby feminist in my 20s, and that is Robin Morgan's The Demon Lover. Robin Morgan is a second-wave feminist who I actually don't find especially congenial in terms of of her her ideas about how society can be improved in many ways. In many ways, I do agree with her. But The Demon Lover was about her experience in the, the 60s and 70s sort of 
student and then post-student radical movements. And she was involved with the Weathermen and um, got into debates about bombings and um, and it changed her 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 romance with the idea of revolution, partly because she got into an argument with some of her fellow activists about whether they should place a bomb in a building. And she was worried that someone like a cleaning lady would be injured. And the other people there were sort of like, well, if they work for the running dogs of whatever bank it was, you know, that's, they're just a casualty of war. And this was the beginning of her sort of rolling back from that by any means necessary thinking. And it it really shifted my, I mean, it's not like I was a firebrand making Molotov cocktails in the back room, but it, I, I sudden, it suddenly broadened my idea of the kind of people who get hurt in a revolution and the kind of people who think that that doesn't really matter if it gets you to the end of the revolution. And the line that I remember from that book so clearly was the problem with a revolution is that it's just that. It's just the turn of the wheel. It's still the same wheel. Mm. Wow. Um, Steve, do you have one? Well, for the record, I've learned more from Laura Miller's description of reading nonfiction than I've ever learned from reading nonfiction. <laughs> but I'll follow that up, um, uh, you know, uh, with my own weak tea, which is, um, you know, I, I, you know, okay, well, you know, take the world's smallest violin out of a drawer because I'm about to say that I did grow up in a household without books, and I think I, it wasn't some. I was advantaged in every other single way. So, um, but, but, but one of the disadvantages, or the primary disadvantage of that, is that you don't really understand culture has no context for you really. Um, and it comes at you in bits and pieces and you sense there are things that you should read and, and that, that your sense of it as, as maybe a somewhat integrated tissue or landscape comes very slowly and much later. And I think, you know, um, but what I discovered, somehow I came in possession at a fairly young age of a secondhand copy of Ian Hamilton's biography of the poet Robert Lowell. And it had never occurred to me to read a biography or a literary bi- biography prior to that. Um, and I found the book completely captivating, in part because this judicious, patient, um, uh, learned, uh, and totally lucid person just took you by the hand and showed you what this life and this life story meant in relation to its time and the remarkable and singular work that was produced. And all of a sudden, Lowell had a context that he otherwise wouldn't have had if I had just read a stray poem here or there, which, you know, because of the tyranny of close reading, by the way, is the way many English classes were taught. So you just sort of read the poem aside from a biography or, um, or the you know time that produced it, and all of a sudden you know he had a context. He was relating to T. S. Eliot and the po- other poets who came before him and, and massively influenced him. He bore a relationship to his Catholic faith and his family to Puritan New England, to his contemporaries like Elizabeth Bishop, to the confessional movement that he helped create and um, and opened up for maybe in some respects more notorious practitioners. I don't know if exactly more famous, but certainly Plath and Anne Sexton came um, directly from the influence of Lowell and life studies. Uh, his, you know, the, f- the fact that he was bipolar, I mean, all kinds of completely captivating things suddenly hit me all at once. And it, it set a pattern of reading um, ever since. I mean, I, I was 
very taken, very bewitched by Wittgenstein. He's not necessarily always so easy to understand, or maybe you think you understand it, but just the moment you're most under- misunderstanding him. Ray Monk wrote an unbelievable biography of Wittgenstein that opened up not only Wittgenstein's work, but the man lived one of the truly beguiling lives of the 20th century. I mean, he, you know, I mean, it, it remarkable what parts of the 20th century he experienced and in his own utterly peculiar way, you know, personally, in addition to producing, I mean, being arguably the greatest philosopher of the century. Um, so uh, th- 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 those were hugely important. To me. How and old would, were you when you read the first one? Like, where did you find it? Were you still in high school? Uh, I believe I was between the ages of 17 and 19. I, I, I think I might have even been out of high school and knew that I was literary-ish, but still sensed that this cosmos, like the literary, there's something about the, something about the holism of the literary enterprise was eluding me. And, and I just felt like I just gotten these random bits and pieces that you get in high school. You know, it could have been, I took there were gaps of time where I was not in school between the ages of 18 and 21 for a variety of reasons um, that will, you'll be able to read about in my biography. Um, But, um, uh, and so I just remember so vividly lying on a, you know, on a bed and just reading this thing in like three sittings, probably, I would say I was 19 if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other huge one just, we were, sorry, no, go, 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 go. Well, that's what we were talking about before. The the thing about the nonfiction book is it's this step back, sometimes, often, that gives you this context, this panoramic view that helps you make sense of things in a way that other kinds of nonfiction can't. I I, I really believe that. I really believe that in the way that a great novel is telling the inner life of a society at a particular moment, and if it happens to be your society or something about your society overlaps with it well enough. You feel this lightning filament, you know, this connection to it that makes you say, ah, yes, that's true because of what I know already. Whereas the nonfiction writer has done all of this legwork out in the world that you haven't done in in some cases a decade's worth of legwork. And then through kind of hard effort and a synthetic genius has brought it together so that you then can come to this understanding that's about the world out there that just isn't implicit in your own experience and very quickly super quickly it's just orwell orwell when you when you begin to grapple with the orwell that wrote nonfiction, you realize so much of it comes directly from him and the idea of going out in the world and kind of declassing yourself or or trying to understand what is happening among the suffering of the world as a person who's in the privileged position of being able to you know to write about it as a way of coming to understand the arbitrariness of your own privilege all of that really extends from the orwell of wigan pier and down and out in paris and london and of course homage to catalonia you know about the war about the Spanish Civil War is the great work, in my estimation, in English of first-person uh, war reporting and historical reporting. So, I mean, he's just indispensable. I discovered him later, and, and cannot believe it took me till my thirties to do it. Yeah, I mean, for me, just the, the people talk a lot about the importance of literature in developing empathy and the ability to put yourself in the mindset of other humans. But I mean, obviously, I'm a journalist and someone who responds to the careful aggregation of facts, but. Um, it was reading nonfiction as a teenager that helped me understand, begin to comprehend the specifics of my situation and how lucky I had been by birth. I went to a really good, expensive private school 
And I remember reading Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities, like during my summers as a lifeguard, watching all the kids from this private school not drown, hopefully. None of them drowned. Um, and, you know, just really learned about what school was like for other kids who had been born other places into other kinds of families and and how different those experiences were and what some of the structural systems were that meant that the education I was getting and so valued was a really, really rare and unusual thing. I remember that book just opening my eye more than a bunch of other experiences I had at that time. I also remember reading There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz about uh, Chicago's projects and and sort of thinking about what the experience of growing up was like for people who had different backgrounds than me. And those were two books that I read in my teens that were world expanding to me and helped me think about the world and my responsibilities to it in a different way. Um, I've always loved mm. thinking about feminism through books. Like, the, you know, if you think about everything from Betty Friedan on forward, I feel like books often are a nice, they have a nice periodicity with which to name and examine the different moments we are in as women. You know, The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf, I, I wonder how it would be to read it now. Like, what a great book to read as a teenage girl. My God, just fantastic. Like, makes you examine so many things that are taken for granted and think, what the goddamn hell? Like, I, I would love to go back and read that again. I haven't read that, you know, probably since I was... 16 or however old I was when I read it. Um, one book that's not on your list that I think could have been a contender is um, Female Chauvinist Pigs by Aria Levy, which came out during this period. And to me is one of the great what has happened to feminism lately tomes of uh, of of American women's letters. Um, and then another book that I also really enjoyed. I'm not sure I would nominate it for this pantheon, but another one that changed my worldview was just reading Gail Collins's history of of women and the feminist movement when everything changed and just learning how close America got to having subsidized childcare and then just didn't by some stupid accident of, you know, 1970s politics. Just thinking about what the world might be like had that happened rather than having almost happened is mind-blowing. Um, and it also makes you think about how consequential these legislative decisions that people aren't making right now can be <laughs> and, and how frustrating it is that they are not being made. Um, and finally, I think I've spoken on this um, podcast about Sibley's Birding Basics, a small nonfiction guide <laughs> to thinking about how to bird. Laura, have you read that book? I haven't. I am a baby birder. So you, I, I'm, I'm going to send just you. To get interested in it, I'm going to send you this book. I read this book right after the oh. election, and it. I had sort of been judgmental of my own fledgling birding and feeling like, oh, it's because I'm not a true nature file and I can't just sit in the dappled sunlight and experience nature. I need to make a list, and it's because I'm lame and da 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 da. And I read it right after the 2016 election, and it's just an incredible little ode to what actually makes birding so fun, which is that each bird is a puzzle and requires you to scrupulously use your powers of observation and deduction to conclude based on things you have observed what bird it might be. And you have to take facts and be honest with yourself about which facts you have actually gathered and which ones you only think you have gathered, and then be <laughs> scrupulous about what you think those facts might be accrete to mean 
And I just found it to be profound. And But it's also just like practically really helpful if you're starting to learn to bird. So I will send you a copy of that, Laura. It's a great book. It's a good it read. It sounds like a manual of detection. Yeah, yeah. Which, given how much I love detective stories, I think will really resonate with me. So I look forward to getting it. Earlier this fall, during the Claggy Sponge edition of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, we had another wonderful guest who this time joined all three of us in conversation. It was the University of Pennsylvania professor Al Philrees who came by to talk about Harold Bloom, one of the most influential American literary critics of the 20th century. Bloom passed away this October, having written more than 40 books, including 20 books of literary criticism. We talked to Al about what his legacy means and about controversies that arose during his long time on the literary stage. Hello and welcome to the Slots Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we are joined by Al Filries, longtime friend of the program from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, to talk about the death of Harold Bloom, uh, probably the most prominent American critic, a controversial figure, uh, and someone about whom we have many questions and thoughts. Steve, you are with Al in Philadelphia. Why don't you lead our line of questioning? Uh, I will do that. Al, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome, Steve. Last minute. Uh, I'm very curious to know whether you dealt with uh, Harold Bloom um, personally in your career. Uh, saw him in action in person a couple times. But saw, mostly, saw him live. Saw him live, yeah. Mostly through reading and being influenced, ironically. Uh, it's hard not to begin, especially to listeners of ours who might not really know Bloom. It's just... How can you not use metaphors of magnitude, right? I mean, he's just, uh, he's just, he's sort of huge and he made himself huge, right? Mm. He tried to insert himself in between the lay reader and what he called the Western canon or what he tried to sort of form or reform as the Western canon. That's quite a well known figure. Why don't we go? backwards a little bit to the younger Harold Bloom, because he was a revolutionary figure in a completely different way. Yeah, I mean, he he sort of figured out how to be a close reader without doing the new criticism. You know, he was able to avoid that. So I think the big move, Steve, had to be when he took all those close reading uh, uh, strategies that he'd learned and an immense, you know, aptitude for memorizing literature as a young person. And then whether he believed that this was the ultimate move or not, he decided to mix close reading with psychoanalytic ideas. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the anxiety of influence, for right. instance. Why don't we explain, just very briefly explain what the, because the anxiety of influence is the first thing that really breaks them out of the academy and people outside of, you know, the small world of, of English literature might become familiar with Harold Bloom because of this like 1973, very slim book. It's not, you know, it's it's a couple hundred pages, if that, but propounding a theory of liter literature as, as a chain of anxious influence. So it's not simply that um, the great writers influence us, but that there's this psychopathology of everyday life thing about when you sit down and you're under the influence of Emerson or Shakespeare, you really have to swerve from them. It's not simply a positive engagement. So that idea had been around a long time, the idea of our positive influence, constructive influence, but the idea that you had to work to avoid it in a Freudian kind of way, right? That was crazy. So his, I think the metaphor he used or the one that we all taught ourselves, I'm sure you did the same, was, you know, if Shakespeare is Jupiter and you're some little 
satellite. You're really under the influence, and it's very hard to escape. There's the perturbation, I think is a term he used, is too great. If you can sidle up as a moon-like thing next to a Mars-like writer, you have a better chance of resisting the perturbation and creating your own. And uh, in this theory, unoriginality is a form of literary non-existence, right? The, the Nietzschean Freudian struggle against this precursor figure is always to wrest from this struggle your own selfhood, which may require patricide, you know, it's patricide or suicide uh, yeah, creatively. Yeah. And, and so it's this really deep psychic struggle to become a, yeah, a literary. Yeah, but ironically... Person. When Bloom set about doing his thing on a writer, let's take Wallace Stevenson as an example. So, you know, Anxiety of Influence is 1973. His next big book, I may be wrong because he wrote so many, is a book about Wallace Stevens of all people, that poet. I think it's about 1977. So, in action, this is weird because it's not like he said that Stevens resisted Whitman and Emerson. He ended up reading Whitman and Emerson in the Stevens, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of cuts both ways. And it, I think it's partly because he didn't, did he ultimately believe that we were doing an edible struggle with every great writer? No, he just really liked to write about the tension of it. Right. And then he became the rescuer. He became almost the psychoanalytic, he, he became almost the therapist getting you out of the problem belatedly. And there's this super counterintuitive move that you allude to, which is that influence can work temporally backwards in some sense, that, that, that a fully strong poet makes us reread everything that came before uh, him, typically him. It's a very gendered uh, theory, I think, but him or her. Uh, ret- about agon and struggle and all yeah. that male stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's fathers and sons, and and but the but the son might become so strong that you reread the father, and therefore the influence is working counter chronologically. What's interesting, and I really want to ask you about this. Oh dear, yeah, is that those of us who encountered this, especially coming of age as I was at the time, we had to do our own resistance of the theory. So that only proved Bloom right. Right, which is that like we struggle with this Bloomian thing and we ignored it. We ignored it as much as possible, but of course it was in our ears and you just can't get it out of your head. And so ironically, we had to swerve around the Bloomian idea that writers have to swerve around their influences. I I have, and we'll bring Dana and Julia, we've been uh, remiss here, but 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 very quickly, my theory about the anxiety of influence is that it does not exist in the struggle for writers to become creatively individual, at least not exactly as Bloom elucidates it. I do think it exists in the relationship between uh, academic mentors and mentees, between thesis advisors and thesis writers. And uh, Bloom was taking a parochial condition of graduate English professionalization and professional reproduction and projecting it upon the English canon. But that's my own pet Yeah, but a better question to ask you, and and Dana and Julia have to get in on this, because his his greatest effect, I think, was not ultimately still inside the academy, Mm. but people who respect the academy, who have been inside the academy, but then went outside to produce works that are readable, Mm -hmm. to produce criticism. 
yeah. which is what all three of you people do. Right. He wanted to right? be a public figure, so I, why don't I throw it over right. to Julia and just... So here's my, but here's my yeah. question before we turn it to oh, Julia sure. is, is, you know, for you, Steve, how do you write through your fealty to Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm? That is to say, you can't simply do a Janet Malcolm, otherwise you're not... You have, you have your own styles that you're wrestling with. This is a Bloomian problem, yes? It's Bloomian in, Bloomian in my sense, which is that my thesis advisor was David Bromwich, and I have struggled to get it the smell of garlic out of my kitchen. You know, it's sort of the metaphor that Larkin used for Yeats. You know, he just had Yeats was in his style as a young poet, like garlic got into a, you know, the garlic smells got into a kitchen. He just couldn't eradicate it. And it was only when he finally read, you have to, he went to another strong father. He went to Hardy. And it was when he read Thomas Hardy and saw that English poetry didn't have to be this inflated mysticism, you know, invoking the entire co cosmos, but could be actually quite mundane and still poetic that he became Philip Larkin. So I often think what you, you've just got to go, you know, I have to go get Joan Didion to go beat up David Bromwich in order to write anything like Stephen Metcalf. Which maybe why I haven't finished my book yet. It's quite a therapy session we're having. <laughs> so Dana, in your, you know, PhD studies, did Harold Bloom, was Harold Bloom's influence uh, infiltrating comparative literature department of Berkeley during your time there? Well, only negatively. I mean, I've been waiting this whole time to respond with my vision of what Harold Bloom meant in the early 90s. And this is not at all a personal vision. I never attended a class with him or heard a lecture by him or anything like that. But by the early 90s, he was seen, at least where I was a grad student in literature at, at UC Berkeley, as a figure of a defender of the canon and not of just of the canon, but of canonicity and the idea that there is, you know, a, a Western canon that must be taught in order to form, form young minds at universities of the traditional and to our mind at the time patriarchal version of what a literary canon was. And as I remember, what he was mainly known for in the kind of culture wars of the early 90s was that he really resisted, vocally resisted the opening of that canon to include women writers, writers of color. I mean, it wasn't that he was specifically attacking individual writers, as I remember, but, you know, he he essentially objected to the idea of objecting to the literary canon. And so that made him something of a nemesis in my graduate studies. And rightly so. He was an, an outright anti-multiculturalist. He was very overt about that. Mm -hmm. And I remember much later, not much later, but shortly after finishing my PhD, when I was struggling along with various extremely low-paying jobs, and one of them was writing for Kirkus Reviews, the, you know, publishing what would you call it? Newsletter, the the the, the publication like for trade. booksellers, yeah. yeah, trade publication, and so you would write these very short um, capsule reviews of new books, and I reviewed some book of Harold Bloom's that was about the canon, and you know was essentially his his defense of the traditional Western literary canon, and I remember him really getting on my nerves by calling, you know, um, three, two, one. And I remember him in this book really getting on my nerves by calling representatives of, you know, new kinds of writing in the canon and different voices, essentially, you know, women writers, writers of color, et cetera, cheerleaders. <laughs> I remember that he had this term, you know, I don't want to read people who are cheerleaders for some individual identity or other. And I still remember, not to quote myself, but I remember in my tiny capsule review saying something about how Harold Bloom was oblivious to his own gigantic humanist pom-poms, you know, that he was he was waving at all times. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then to talk about the last iteration of Harold Bloom that has entered the news, he was implicated in, in Me Too in all kinds of ways that I cannot remember exactly right now and that I don't think were extremely scandalous. But, you know, he was definitely a, a hand on your knee kind of professor to generations of young women at Yale and was not fondly remembered by them for that reason. The people I've spoken with who sat in the classroom say, and I didn't, say something like this. He was ethereal and cerebral, almost a head without a body at the end of the seminar table. But at the same time, you felt that he was, fill in the blank, um, a menchy bodily presence that was in the old style of male genius professors just in the space. Mm. Mm -hmm. And one can imagine how many ways that was intimidating and bad for the purposes of a real seminar discussion. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think my encounter with him probably comes of having been, you know, a high school student at the time when, when you know, the Berkeley Complet Department was reviling his influence and being aware of these debates about canonicity, having had a pretty traditional secondary education where I, you know, read great works of American English literature in order, including many, many, many white men, and then, um, you know, Mary Shelley and... Uh, you know, a couple women around the edges, not so many writers of color. Um, and and found, I remember finding those arguments intellectually fascinating at the time, but thinking of him as kind of Mr. Big Bad, no, the white men wrote the books because they had all the talent, duh, which just seemed so obviously dumb <laughs> to me as a teen. Um, and, you know, I think... I've, I've described this on the show, then after that pretty traditional New England education, going to Brown in the late 90s, thinking I was going to be an English major and just finding myself so alienated and turned off by what, quote unquote, reading literature was at Brown at that time that I retreated to the stodgy, claggy embrace of the history department. <laughs> um, because I actually fundamentally was a little bit more interested in treating texts as texts and reading books in a more classical way, because that's how I had been trained. Um, even if I wanted to read a wider array of authors and think about some of the historical forces that might have let some people write more books than others. Um, so I found myself a little bit twixt in between by the time I got to college. But no, he was just sort of an avatar of being unafraid to say, no, these are the great works. Let's just look at them. I'm interested in how the three of you have dealt with the recent deaths of, you know, really important people. It's so hard when you're in the obit phase. Mm -hmm. Everybody is trying to define certain categories. I think in the case, and you have to do it. You can't wait a year before you right. celebrate a life that's ended. That's just ended. I get that. I'm not. I'm not criticizing that at all. I'm. A, I'm. A, I love listening to your first takes on this. In this case, you know, if you look at the New York Times obit, they struggled because they wanted to say that Bloom was part of the high theory deconstructionist moment at Yale. And for maybe five minutes, he was part of that group. Right. That was very brief. But he was really not doing that at all. But it's yeah. an easy way for us to think about it. He really wanted to escape that for reasons that are both very idiosyncratic and weird and kind of sometimes repulsive, but also because he really wanted to reach outside the academy mm -hmm. and get people to read books that he loved. Yes. 
I think this is a huge key. It, it, he so I took a seminar with him in the 1990s, late phase Bloom, fading into irrelevance. That was the topic. Uh, Shakespeare, he was conscious of his status. Um, and he would often talk about showbiz. Oddly enough, he would admit that what he did was showbiz. And you know, he sort of looked like Zero Mostel. He had this he kind of- he said that he, he called himself Zero Mostel. Yeah. I mean, it's a kind of uncanny uh, resemblance. And I think there was a side to him that was aware of the degree of rhetorical inflation it took in order to get quote unquote general or ordinary readers interested in what interested him. And so the idea of taking it all together, throwing it in one space and calling it something grand like the Western canon was just a way to get people to read Shakespeare and Milton um, and appreciate them in ways they otherwise wouldn't have. He knew that in doing that, he was dealing with the mass media. The mass media needed him to be something of a cartoon. He converted himself into that and it kind of kind of worked. The downside of that was, and this was very true when I was there, is the anxiety of influence had worked the opposite way for him. He'd become the papa. He'd become the patriarch. And he had two students who he did not cultivate, and Yale lost them. And Yale had been a legendary English department for two generations, and it did not stay one for a third generation because Steve, uh, because uh, um, John Guillory and Stephen Greenblatt who were students of Bloom in one way or another, were driven away from that department and driven away in part because he could not accept the way they were using all of society as a kind of textual resource in order to understand, you know, sort of minimizing genius relative to other social factors under the influence of, you know... So-called new historicism, reading history as one would a text. Yeah, so Foucault, the, you know, the influence of... Great Fou move. Fou yeah, Foucault for Green Green Greenblatt and Bourdieu for, uh, for Guillory. They took English studies in a different direction, but uh, uh, Greenblatt became a kind of public figure, almost in some ways the sequel to Bloom, capable of writing a bestseller. Uh, Guillory did really important work and and they weren't at Yale in part because he couldn't take hearing another way of thinking about it. Yeah, he went with the genius theory. It's almost as if he read his Freud except when Freud got to civilization and it's discontent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You said Zero Mostel. I could think of is Harold Bloom snapping and singing <laughs> tradition. Totally appropriate, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, this morning, you know, you, you, emailed me, come talk about Harold Bloom. So I went to look for my Bloom and it wasn't there. Why? I had all my Wallace Stevens books and the Bloom should be there. It turns out that I had relegated it to the basement. <laughs> yeah. And this says everything. I mean, this is what Dana and Julia are talking about. You know, at a certain point, Bloom was not going to speak to me. I really not, it was really not interested, but I had to deal with him because I was writing a book about Wallace Stevens. So I put him in the basement. But I have to say, every time I write an essay about Stevens, the word Bloom, capitalized B, is in there mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah. Because you can't get him out of your head, partly because he was such a great, close reader. Yeah. And that's ultimately what we're about. Yeah. Here, here. Here, yeah, and the, and, and the basement is not the same as taking it to Goodwill, right? Maybe it's not, as you say, uh, something that you're going to get off the shelf and crack again in the near future, but it's there part of forming the, the base and the formation of your thinking. Totally right. The basement is a great metaphor for it, as it turns out. Yeah. Al, thank you so much for coming in. This was so interesting you're to welcome. hear how Bloom's Anytime. work resonated through your work. And uh, thank you all Slate Plus members for listening and for supporting Slate and its work. One nonfiction book that had us talking last February was Jill Abramson's Merchants of Truth. 
In this book, Abramson, the former executive editor of the New York Times, promised to give readers a look at the news business from the inside. But something seems to have gone wrong. Take a listen as we discuss the charges of plagiarism against Abrams and the book and about what they signaled about her view of the media. Hello, and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Uh, thank you so much for supporting Slate and its journalism and for listening to this bonus segment of our show. Today, we are discussing a very strange journalism story. Jill Abramson came out with a book recently called Merchants of Truth, in which she profiles four modern American newsrooms. I believe it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Vice, and uh, sets out to describe how journalism is faring in the modern economy, um, and came in for some criticism early on for uh, seeming potentially dismissive of Vice and, to a lesser extent, BuzzFeed and new media newsrooms in general. But then uh, a Vice employee discovered some instances of plagiarism in the Vice chapter of the book. His name is Michael Moynihan, and he tweeted a very persuasive thread of multiple instances of this book, Merchants of Truth, taking full passages of text, uh, mostly describing kind of factual historical details about movers and shakers in these newsrooms um, or in the vice newsroom from other sources, from other pieces of reporting, from other essays that had appeared online. Um, and it was some real uh, got to have a talk with the college freshmen in my seminar stuff. And it caused a furor online, both both the shock that someone with such a sterling journalistic reputation might somehow be guilty of plagiarism, and then also some conversation around the responses of the, a set of uh, defenders and advocates of Abramson's who suggested that this wasn't really plagiarism. Uh, and I am curious to know what you guys thought. Well, I mean, I think the very first thing is if you're going to set yourself up as a scold and a legacy media authority on new media and the millennials that create it, um, you have to be, you have to clean your own stables until they're spick and span first. And so that's the primary error here or primary compounding error here, which is that, you know, she held herself, it seems like, to an incredibly low standard. Now, exactly how and why is still a subject of dispute. Um, these are clearly instances of plagiarism, and there are many of them. So they don't feel academic. Uh, they don't feel uh, incidental. They feel somewhat baked into the way in which the book was created. So the open question is, well, she apparently worked with a researcher who in her own acknowledgments, she says, essentially wrote parts of the book. Um, so she's guilty of something, uh, whether it's laziness and and using a, you know, using a co-writer, presumably younger, presum- presumably hungrier uh, co-writer uh, as a kind of crutch, or whether it's it's laziness, sloppiness, or, or something more culpable, inculpating than that, uh, is still open to the question. But what I will say is that her defense of it having been, I mean, she's on the one hand coming out and saying that she owns up to it. I mean, she has to. These things are stark. There's no evading them. But her excuse is terrible in my estimation, which is, you know, 
Um, and Tom Skoka has an, a really good Dana pointed us to a really good essay by him about this. But there's this kind of pecking order attitude towards it, whereby a, if a lesser known writer writes what appears to be a kind of boilerplate on the basic facts of an issue, it's so generic that it's almost public property and a more well-known, more powerful writer is at liberty to just take it and use it and and repurpose it with ba- barely any rewriting whatsoever. I mean, it's just astonishing to me that in the face of in the face of owning up to it, the act of owning up to it, she's also excusing it um, as irrelevant because this is supposedly generic enough, uh, common enough information and common enough or commonplace enough diction that it doesn't really count as stealing to do it. That just seems in- insane to me. Yeah, I mean, her defenses, I think, have been really what made me care about this scandal. I think the idea that she had a Doris Kearns Goodwin style plagiarism scandal, which is essentially that you're a big, famous writer who has so many assistants that, you know, the plagiarism kind of slips through, doesn't fly in her responses. Because the thing that she keeps on saying, and Tom Skoka is really astute at pointing it out in this in this. I thought brilliant piece of media criticism about this plagiarism scandal. The excuse that she's giving is I didn't footnote properly as I should have, but she didn't even set things aside in block quotes. In other words, she's not even showing Mm -hmm. that she's getting the information from somewhere else, much less attributing where that place is. So, you know, there's there's really not any excuse for there being exact strings of 20 words or so that are replicated from another source, except that somebody, probably her assistant, because, you know, you doubt that she would do this deliberately knowing that she would get caught. Right. That, that somebody essentially cut and pasted and either forgot where they had gotten the cutting and pasting from or deliberately tried to pass it off as original text. And there's just really not any level on which that's okay. So, I mean, it just seems like her apologies have all been those Clintonian non-apology apologies where she says, oh, I fully own this. But yet at the same time, here's 15 mitigating factors that make it not that bad. Well, there just is this high handedness in some of the comments that, you know, this really isn't plagiarism. I wasn't intentionally trying to pass someone else's ideas off as my own. That's that's just such a semantic sleight of hand. Intent intent is not necessarily part of what determines whether something is plagiarism or not. It potentially uh, helps one think about the gravity of the offense, whether someone is truly a like nefarious imposter or someone has just been sloppy about the theft, which is what plagiarism is, the theft of someone else's labor. Um, but, you know, whether you slip something into your purse on purpose or you, you know, happen to take it home by accident, like it's still theft. So the, the, the intent is not the key factor in the crime of plagiarism, right? Um, so the, the notion that intent matters at all is bullshit. And then there's the question of um, kind of whether it's facts versus original insights. And this is where I think Tom Skoka's piece is so strong, which is that there's this, again, high-handed sense of like, well, I was just getting facts that anybody could get. But honestly, these facts are about the biographies of fairly mm-hmm. obscure news people advice, right. like doing the biographical research, you know, if part of what you're trying to do is say, who makes up these new newsrooms and have they been trained appropriately and what kind of work do they do and what kind of information is the world getting as a result? Like, it's it's not uh, like dumping the Wikipedia entry for like Teddy Roosevelt's biography. Like, these are obscure-ish people. And somebody did the work of figuring out where they came from. And then she stole it. <laughs> Whether she stole it because she hired an assistant who had bad note-taking practices and it somehow ended up in the final document um, I, I would say 
that the initial mistake strikes me as grave, but forgivable if handled appropriately. And it's the secondary mistake of the the response to it that has me incredibly disappointed in someone who um, I have always really admired. I mean, I remember when she became the editor of the New York Times that I did not know that I, it mattered to me that there had never been a female editor of the New York Times. And then when she got that job, I felt so moved and excited. And it's really disappointing to have her um, just be so lame about it. And it honestly makes, it's given me this like sense of self-searching of like, God, would I just, just like, if I fucked up in this way, would I be that lame? Like, cause she also has this reputation for being so tough and no bullshit and hardheaded. You know, she, she doesn't seem like someone who lets anybody off easy. So the notion that she's giving herself this um, pass on just a tr- a evident bad mistake and using all these weasel words to say, I'd really like to talk about the important ideas in my book, which I understand writing a book seems really hard. That's why I have not tried to do it. And I understand that she thinks she's made a bunch of important points here that we should all discuss. But, you know, sloppiness in journalism undermines right. it. Like, that's why we all try to avoid it. That's why we try to get things right. That's why we try to have low correction rates. That's why we try not to plagiarize. Um, and so I, I, I have just found her response to it so off-putting. Yeah, and listen, be a paragon of the journalistic virtues that you're supposedly writing the book on behalf of. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll tell you one of my big problems. One of my all-time favorite books, I think I've endorsed it as Eminent Victorians by Lytton Strachey. And it's in some ways the first great modern nonfiction book, you know, uh, ever written. And and Strachey does this thing that for me has made him just a, a hero, like an abiding hero in my writing life, which is that he writes it's essentially four essays on four public figures from the Victorian era. And at the end of each chapter, there are no, it's not a scholarly book. There are no footnotes. He just has a little bibliography of between eight and 12 works from which he just openly says, like, I took all of the information from these eight or 12 books. There are the books out there that are the biographies or the major sources um, of information. You know, he's sort of saying my book is a work of, of secondary or possibly tertiary literature. But what makes it okay is, first of all, he presumably stole nothing. It's never been, as far as I know, he's never been accused of stealing anything from those books. He's completely open about what the value add of his work is, which is that it's creative, essayistic, imaginative, theoretical, historical, and interpretive in ways that those works weren't. I mean, the facts have to come from somewhere, right? Unless you're doing boots on the ground reporting and interviewing people and going into archives to look at primary documents yourself, it's highly likely that a lot of what one writes in a nonfiction context is tertiary, which is fine if you're A, honest about it, but B, if the value added is your creativity, which includes inevitably not even consciously attempting to rewrite something so you hide the fact that you took it from someone else but actually writing something that's yours will inevitably produce prose that is yours if you see what i'm saying and so this is to me the big tell is yes there's an ethical dimension to this that ought to have the book either be pulped or substantially rewritten or 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 laughed uh, off of the you know away from the bestseller list but the larger thing is that it's the sheer creative laziness of it it could it can't possibly be that she was writing an original argument and incorporating this amount of 
secondhand filched material into her own prose. How many instances were they roughly? Was it like a dozen or so? I I think they're still being compiled, but I've seen at least two people separately come forward with several instances each. And I think there are more. Yeah, I don't know about you, Steve, but I ask myself a lot about this as I'm writing myself. Like, will I have footnotes? Will I have endnotes? That's not really clear to me yet. I'm trying to keep track of everything I read, but, you know, I'm not sure that every single idea that I get from somewhere has been written down with a page number. But this is why you have to be really careful about not cutting and pasting things into documents and thinking you're going to remember later where they came from, right? And to try to keep everything as labeled as you possibly can. A great book that that I think I've maybe endorsed on the show before that treats this in an interesting way is uh, Anne Douglas's great book, Terrible Honesty, a book about New York in the 1920s, essentially, just a really, really vast kind of compendium of, you know, the, the thought and literature and political history and everything of that time. And uh, it's so huge and so dense. It's probably a 700 page book or something that doesn't have footnotes or endnotes. It has a bibliographical essay at the end where she mm-hmm. essentially as a little bit like what you were saying about Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians. She, you know, writes at length about the various books that she read that fed into her thinking about something. And she'll say in a general way, something like my thinking about Freud. Freud comes from, you know, such and such biography of Freud and so, so this and that book of Freud, but mm-hmm. doesn't doesn't necessarily uh, attribute every single idea to a specific work. And that seems to me, you know, if you're if you're doing it honestly, like an equally fine way of treating the bibliographical question that keeps you from having what would be in her case, half a book full of citations. Yeah. And as someone who's attempting to write a nonfiction book that's heavily dependent on, you know, uh, secondary sources, there is a moment when your argument becomes primary to your chapter. And at that moment, plagiarism becomes uh, um, an irrelevant consideration because you literally are just spelling out your argument. And, uh, and and it has to be in your own words. And no part of it isn't interpretive according to your own sensibility. It just, I mean, I'm look, I mean, don't watch me turn around and get fucking busted for something. I mean, I, you know, uh, you do have to be careful. It's a bookkeeping issue as much as it, as it is anything else. But I, I was very conscious of this because early on in drafting things, I was like, oh my God, like I'm incredibly dependent upon this quite good, thoroughly researched, but very, you know, uncommonly known biography of sort of not that famous figure X, you know, but it's as soon as your argument achieves liftoff, you're 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 using your sources, but you're beyond them, presumably. I mean, that's that, you know, and it's like, I just think this, the reason why the Fareed Zakarias of the world and now Jill Abramson's get busted on this, and to a degree Doris Kearns Goodwin, is that you create a brand name, you're famous for something else already, and you're churning out a book, a nonfiction book on a contract that pays you really well, and you're able to hire a research assistant for fucking peanuts. And what's really driving the book is not your creative sensibility. I mean, they're kind of I don't know. I mean, like, I don't want to be too derisive here, but they're, they're in a way, they're just kind of like fat. They are, they themselves are factory product. They show these authors show to their own materials, the same incredible lack of respect they show to the materials that they're stealing. You know, what does it say? What does it say when your defense is what I stole is totally generic and boilerplate and you put it undigested into your own fucking prose and it didn't fucking stick out. Like what kind of a book are you, are you making that you did it that way? Yeah. And why are you writing a book in the first place? Yeah. No, exactly. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, then look, I don't, I don't mean to be, uh, I would never ring Jill Abramson on this because I think anybody can make mistakes. One thing about internet research is you can 
cut and paste things into documents so that you still have it because who knows whether that page is going to continue and having really good record keeping is important. But I, I sympathize with what you're saying, Steve, which is like, I feel like when I write and I write rarely because I mostly edit, there's like a bunch of docs where all the research is and the notes are. And then there's the thing I'm writing and that's like its own doc and it's like rot painfully from the sky like it's 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 um I don't know I I guess everybody has their own process but it's I feel like there's always a hard delineation between the place where the research lives and the place where you're uh actually forging the thing itself yeah. And if you don't observe that distinction, I mean, it's easy to understand in the process of researching a book how something could be incorporated accidentally. But that's when that's your job. It's your job as a writer or reporter is to keep those two things separate in your mind, if not on the page. All right. Well, it sounds like we all disapprove of Jill Abramson's plagiarism and her defense <laughs> of it. Uh, another another rousing debate from the Culture Gap Fest team. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast and for supporting Slate and its work. That's it for our Roundup show of Slate Plus segments. Thank you so much for listening to us over the past year, and we look forward to speaking to you all again in 2020. Happy New Year. My dear acquaintance, it's so good to know you For strength of your hand that is loving and giving And a happy new year with love overflowing with joy in our hearts for the blessed new year. Raise your glass and we'll have a cheer for us all who are gathered here. And a happy new year to all that is living, to all that is gentle, kind. Raise your glass and we'll have